0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Houston, before we uh, close
2: out our EVA, we understand that there are Young people in Houston
3: today... In December 1972, Gene Cernan delivered what would become the last message ever to be sent by a person from the surface of the moon. Had the opportunity to watch the launch of Apollo 17. Standing next to the American flag, Cernan picked up a rock from the lunar surface. When we
2: return this rock or some of the others like it to Houston, we'd like to share a piece of this rock with so many of the countries throughout the world. We hope that this will be a symbol of what our feelings are, what the feelings of the Apollo program are, and a symbol of mankind that we can live
3: in peace and harmony in the future. That mission, Apollo 17 was funded by the American government, and it brought more than 100 kilos of moon rocks back to Earth.
1: Put that in the big bag, Gino. In the big
2: bag.
3: Roger. We salute you, promise of the future. We thank you for your sentiments and your interest. Gathering rocks from the moon was an important part of the Apollo program's scientific aims. At the time, the world was captivated by the efforts to reach, walk on and study Earth's closest neighbour. After Apollo 17 though, getting to the moon faded into history. Half a century later, though, the moon is now coming back into focus. NASA plans to send people back there in 2025 as part of its Artemis programme. And in 2023, a race is already on between companies to send the first privately funded robotic missions to land on the lunar surface. There are plenty of questions about how far this new era of moon missions will actually go, and how the companies involved will go about making any money. But what's clear is that the age of commercial lunar flight is about to dawn. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist, Science Correspondent. Today we'll be exploring why a flurry of private companies are racing to get to the Moon, and what they'll do when they get there. Is this all just about space tourism? Is it about mining precious materials, or are there business opportunities on the Moon yet to be dreamed of? And perhaps most importantly, who actually owns the Moon? guiding me through today's show is Tom Standage. As well as being the host of our future gazing podcast, The World Ahead, Tom is also The Economist's deputy editor. And most importantly, he's also a self-confessed space nerd. Thanks for joining me, Tom.
4: Hello, it's great to be here.
3: Uh, Tom, can you give me an upshot of what this new moon space race is all about? And and why are you specifically interested in it?
4: Well, I'm interested in it because I do follow these things. And I was very struck by the fact that after years of talking about sending private missions to the moon, it's actually finally happening. I mean, these missions have been talked about for ages. There was the Google Lunar X Prize, which was a prize of $20 million for anyone who could get a private lander onto the moon, which ended up not being awarded. So I've sort of been following this on and off for getting on for a decade, I guess. And there are now three probes that could actually get there in the next few weeks. One of them is already in space and the other two are about to launch. So one way or another, one of these things will probably work and we'll probably finally get a successful private lander onto the moon but it's still up for grabs that prize and there are three companies that could still win it now, i should stress these are all robotic probes there are no people on any of them
3: okay well let's talk about those missions then you said that one's already in space tell me about that one first
4: so that one is called hakuto r and it's actually one of the teams from the the Google Lunar X Prize called Hakuto which means white rabbit in Japanese it's a Japanese team and they're planning to send two landers and this is the first one this year one next year to the moon the company that is operating this is called iSpace and they launched it on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket on December the 11th (laughs) and it's on its way to the moon now but it's taking this rather unusual route which means it won't actually get there until April
3: Well, I was just going to say, it's already in space. The other ones haven't launched yet, but how is this a race? Because surely we know that from the Apollo missions that you can get to the moon in less than a week.
4: Exactly. So it turns out you can get to the Moon pretty quickly. But if you do take a quick route to the Moon, you then have to use a lot of fuel to slow down again. And so what this probe is doing is taking a rather different approach, where it's sort of gently left Earth's orbit, and its orbit has been very, very carefully designed so that as it crosses the orbit of the Moon, it then falls into orbit around the Moon. So this uses a lot less energy, and it means that you're not wasting mass, on fuel that you then can't use for payload mass. So you get to carry more stuff, but it takes longer. And the other two missions are going to take much more traditional routes to the moon and could get there a lot quicker. And that's why this is a race, because the one that's in space already is going to take a lot longer.
3: What is the payload of this particular mission?
4: Well, it's a bunch of different things. And the idea with the private missions like this is that essentially the companies that are operating the landers can say, right, who wants to buy a slot? Who wants to put things on the moon? And so with all of these landers, you've got a mixture of governments and companies and various interesting instruments and rovers going on. In the case of Hakuto R, there are two rovers. There's one from the UAE, And that's about the size of a cat. And so that would be the first rover from an Arab country on the moon. And then there's also a quite interesting sort of baseball sized rover and it sort of can change shape and it rolls around and amazingly this has actually been co-designed by the company that used to make transformers toys in the 1980s which was Tomy. and uh, so it really is a sort of japanese style transformer robot that's going to be delivered to the lunar surface
3: i've got a bit of whiplash here transformer on the moon (laughs) that's what's going to happen
4: yeah, exactly. So it's a bit like those toy robots you can get that roll around. So it's a, a sphere and it can change its center of mass and that allows it to move around and to change shape and things. And then there's a bunch of instruments as well. They're sort of cameras and things like that. So this is pretty much a proof of concept. But in both of the other two's case, they're both American and NASA has paid for slots on those landers and has funded the bulk of the actual mission in each case. But rather than operating it all itself, it's just given the money to a private company and said, Look, here's some money, take this stuff to the moon, it's up to you how you do it. And so that's part of a new NASA program called CLPS, which stands for Commercial Lunar Payload Services. And essentially what's happening in those two cases is that NASA is using these private companies to get instruments to the moon, both as a proof of concept, but also to start looking at aspects of the moon, certain bits of the moon where it wants to send human astronauts in the next few years. So it's a way of sort of outsourcing the job of taking the instruments that it wants to get to the moon.
3: And so tell us the names of those two other missions and and when are they going to launch?
4: So the other two are both due to launch in March. One of them is a probe called Nova-C, and that's made by a company called Intuitive Machines based in Houston, Texas, and that's going to be going on a Falcon 9 sometime in March, and they're just about to announce when that's going to be. And then the other probe is called Peregrine, and that's the creation of a company called Astrobotic, and that's going to be going on a new rocket called the Vulcan Centaur. They're talking about launching it in March. This new big rocket, the Vulcan Centaur, has never flown before, so that does add an element of risk. Both of those two probes would do a much more sort of Apollo-like, get-to-the-moon-in-a-few-days trajectory. And so both of them could arrive potentially in March, and therefore both of them could beat Hakuto R to the punch.
3: So basically, at the end of March, that's when the the race is really on for those few days to see which one, via various orbital mechanics, will manage to land on the Moon first.
4: Exactly. And I think actually it'll be what happens on Earth that will really um, be the deciding factor, because as we know, space launches, we've seen these ones slip again and again and again and again, and weather can affect things, even when the rocket's all assembled and on the pad and everything. So yes, the race really begins when they actually blast off, and then we know whether they're on their way or not.
3: Okay, thanks, Tom. We'll hear a bit more from you a little later on. The company with perhaps the best chance of beating iSpace to the lunar surface is called Intuitive Machines. Our producer Jason Hoskin has been investigating what that company is up to.
5: Our mission, one, his main objective is to touch down softly in a very difficult, challenging, mountainous
0: environment. Steve Ultimus is the founder and boss of Intuitive Machines, That's one of two companies vying to put the first American lander on the moon since the Apollo missions.
5: We were recently requested by NASA to alter our landing site from a mid-latitude location to the south pole of the moon. And so we're very excited about that. That move to the south pole puts us the first mission ever to land on the south pole in the history of mankind. The
0: lunar South Pole will become the focus for Intuitive Machines' first few moon missions, as part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services program.
5: Our second mission goes off later in the year, and that is to drill down a meter into the surface of the South Pole looking for water ice. And that's a very exciting mission. Part of that mission also is we're flying our extreme mobility hopper. It's essentially a rocket-propelled drone that will fly off of the lander and land in a permanently shadowed region of the moon and collect temperature data in the bottom of that crater. We're also testing the 4G LTE Nokia cell phone technology on that hopper and communicating from a great distance away from the lander back to the lander.
0: But beyond their scientific aims, Intuitive Machines wants to equip the moon
5: for future human use. The commercial industry can lead the way, putting in the critical infrastructure. And so if you look at where we're going to be as intuitive machines and commercial companies, we'll be like an expeditionary force. First, land softly. From there, you'll establish communications. You'll establish navigation services and provide those communication and navigation services to any other missions that are coming in the vicinity of the moon. You'll drop payloads off in orbit and on the surface. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you're going to set up that infrastructure? Yes, and so right now it takes large parabolic dishes from Earth to reach the Moon. So we've gone around the world in six different countries and contracted with the large radio astronomy dishes to point their antennas towards the Moon when we have a mission. We put our technology at the base of their transceiver and we uplink and downlink commands and data to the lander on its route to the moon and from the lander back to Earth. And then we'll send that on to the payload providers.
0: One of those satellite stations on Earth that will communicate with the mission is called Goon Hilly. I'm just driving down these rural Cornish country lanes and we're pretty much at the most southerly point of Britain. And I can just see on the horizon these huge satellite dishes that are communicating with low Earth orbit, with geostationary orbit, and that big one there is Goonhilly 6. That is the satellite that is communicating with deep space and it's having a really important role to play in these private moon missions. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. you. Ian Jones, the chief executive of Goonhilly Earth Station, showed me around.
2: So there are about 50 or so, 55 antennas of all different shapes and sizes doing different things. Goonhilly was once the largest satellite earth station in the world,
0: but in 2008, British Telecom, who ran the site, closed it down. After campaigning to preserve the dishes, Ian Jones set up a company to upgrade Goonhilly into a commercial space science centre, predicting the opening out of the private space
2: sector. That gamble appears to be paying off. So, we are the world's first and only privately owned deep space antenna, and that antenna is part of both the European Space Agency's EZTRAC network, and then also the NASA JPL deep space network. And so that means they can be called upon to be used for those missions. So we're the only private company in the world that has that capability. And now our plan is to expand that and build more antennas around the world to, to create a global independent network. Last year, the team provided
0: data for NASA and the European Space Agency's Artemis One mission. That's the first step towards sending humans back to the moon. But Goonhilly is also playing a role
2: in the private moon race. We've been helping to track and command the iSpace Hakuto R mission throughout its journey. We'll be tracking it again this evening. Uh, It sort of comes in an out-of-phase day and night time, so at the moment uh, we sort of pick it up at about 9pm. We track it through the night until the early hours of the morning. Uh, But that changes obviously throughout the month making sure that it's on track and uh, that the iSpace team get the data back and manage to get the commands to that are needed. And are you doing similar work with the upcoming Intuitive Machines mission? That's correct, yes. So we've been working with Intuitive for quite a while and at the moment we're in the stage of practicing.
0: So you think the privatization will will really continue and eventually even the governmental missions will rely more on private stations like this?
2: Well, if you look at the number of missions planned to the Moon alone, you know there's over 300 missions planned in the next 15 years to go to the Moon. It's, it's a headlong rush now to establish uncrewed missions, uh, human settlement on the Moon, a space station in orbit around the Moon, missions to go to the far side of the Moon, which the Earth never sees, so you need relay satellites to relay the messages back from from there. Now, the Moon's a tricky place because its year and its day are are locked to be 28 days long. We never see the far side of the Moon, but if you're on the Moon, you have 14 days of daylight and then 14 days of darkness. And with no atmosphere, the the 14 days of daylight are 150 degrees centigrade, and the 14 days of darkness at minus 150 degrees
0: not very pleasant it's
2: uh, it's not easy to survive the, the lunar night and so from a mission point of view no mission is, is planned to last longer than the, the lunar day 14 days but we need to get over that we need to get enough energy onto the moon that we can survive the lunar night so there's all sorts of missions planned and not enough dishes on the ground to support those missions. I suppose you came to Goonhilly before the private space industry really boomed.
0: I guess you predicted this to happen, or can you say it, it, it's all working out as well as you'd hoped? Or What are your reflections on that?
2: Yeah, so it is really interesting. We had this very clear vision that space exploration communications was going to go private. It's really quite a different proposition to what normal satellite teleports do, but it, like... Any business, getting the timing right is so hard and essentially, you know, you have to be lucky to get the timing right. So the key for us was having alternative revenue streams that allowed us to survive until the timing was right. If we'd have been successful in achieving perhaps the the upgrade of the the antenna before we had, had, we might have been too early. We might have run out of cash. I think it's a combination of getting the market right and getting there at the right time.
0: Goonhilly is just one example of how the private space sector is reviving old infrastructure, creating new jobs and encouraging innovation. But for Steve Ultimus of Intuitive Machines, it's not just about boosting economies on Earth. He has his sights set on creating new economies elsewhere. What we've
5: done here is shown that we can create a blueprint for how to commercialize a um, celestial body. So what we do is we land softly, establish comms and navigation and begin a logistics supply. Imagine that further and further out into the solar system. And so going to the, the moons of Mars, to Mars, out into the other planets in the solar system and their moons might be very exciting. I think competition is a good thing and more opening of this market is a good thing. A lot of the general public doesn't realize how near commercialization of the moon is. It's upon us. It's happening today. And we're proud to be a first mover in that market.
3: I'm back with The Economist, Tom Standage. Tom, for anyone who's been following this private space industry over the past decade or so, we've all seen it grow enormously um, with private space launches all the way up to Earth orbit. I mean, SpaceX has really cornered the market there. There are other launchers too. I just wonder if you could put the current moon rush into that context and the history of private space flight.
4: Well, if you look at last year's figures, there were 178 successful launches to orbit. And of those, 90 were done by companies rather than government. So that's a majority just. And of those, actually, 61 were just done by SpaceX alone. So we're already in a situation where sending things into orbit is something that's sort of mainly a private sector affair now. But that's not the case with the moon. It is essentially a, a government monopoly, as it were, sending stuff to the moon. So that's what makes this interesting, that NASA and others are starting to say, we should try to tap the sort of benefits we got from farming out bits of orbital launch to the private sector. We should try to get that with the moon as well. So what happened in the case of uh, launching things to orbit was there were private companies that did it. SpaceX came along and really... Provided very vigorous competition to everyone else because it was much cheaper. And now that it's got these reusable rockets, you know, it really has got an enormous cost advantage, which is why it's so dominant. But what that allowed NASA to do, for example, was it's given this contract to SpaceX to send astronauts to the space station and bring them back again, rather than having to build and operate its own rockets to do that sort of thing. And the most direct comparison, actually, is in heavy launch. If you look at the Artemis SLS rocket that took off last year, I mean, the cost of operating that rocket, which is the biggest rocket that NASA's ever had, is is about $2 billion a launch, we think. And a Falcon Heavy rocket by SpaceX can launch about the same amount into orbit for about $100 million. So it's about 20 times cheaper. And if they manage to get their new Starship to work, then that would reduce the cost of a similar launch down to about $10 million, which is really extraordinary. So the introduction of the private sector and of innovation and competition really has reduced prices. And the question is, can the same thing happen with sending stuff to the moon? And if you look at what these companies are doing, so the case of Astrobotic, for example, they literally have a price list. So if you want to send stuff to lunar orbit, that's $300,000 per kilogram. If you want to send stuff to the moon's surface, that's $1.2 million per kilogram. And if you're delivering a rover, then that's $2 million per kilogram. And they've got contracts from NASA and from other organisations that want to send stuff. So they've literally got this price list. How much do you want to send? Where do you want to send it? And then they go and buy launch services from SpaceX or whoever they want to buy it from. And so you're starting to get a value chain. You're starting to get sort of market forces operating. And then for someone like NASA, they can just say, look, we want to send this rover to here, who wants to send it? And then they pay a fixed amount of money rather than having to do it all themselves. And, you know, what tends to happen with these things is that they end up being late and over budget and all the rest of it. When a private company is on the hook to meet a certain price for a certain service, then we're more likely to see prices go down and competition go up.
3: But it doesn't mean, that obviously, that governments are staying out of the moon race. I mean, NASA is going to send people, hopefully by the end of this decade. You know, the Chinese have got plans, the Indian Space Research Organisation has got plans to send more missions to the moon, amongst others. How do the commercial missions that we've been talking about today, how do they sort of compare or support what governments are doing? Well, in the case of NASA
4: sending people to the moon, if you remember the Apollo program, of course, that was all funded by NASA, but they relied on private companies to build the lander and the rockets and so on. So there are various ways of doing this where you do it on a cost plus basis or where you have a fixed contract price for doing things. And so even the Artemis mission does involve quite a lot of private sector involvement. SpaceX has got a, a contract to build the lander and so on. But that's a different kettle of fish from SpaceX itself going out to people and saying, who wants a ticket to the moon? Or a company like Astrobotic or Intuitive saying, who wants a send stuff to the moon, this is the cost per kilogram. And that really does potentially open up the market to new people to do new things. I think the question is, are there new things that you actually want to do? Because there's lots of useful things you can do from sending stuff into orbit. As we know, you can do military things like GPS, which may turn out to have commercial benefit and now we all have GPS in our phones. You can do things like weather forecasting, satellites and earth monitoring. And then you can do sort of straightforwardly commercial things like radio and TV broadcasting, internet service like Starlink. So there's lots of commercial uses you can make of orbital space.
3: We talk a lot on this show and in the paper, of course, about why you know research in space for scientific purposes is interesting and why it matters. But I wonder, are there actually other things you can do on the Moon? You've talked about all the commercial uses of low Earth orbit, but on the Moon, are there commercial opportunities too? Do these companies or others see money to be made on the Moon's surface?
4: Well, at the moment, the way that they're sort of justifying it is that they could get publicity from doing it. But ultimately, you have to ask yourself what the sort of commercial opportunities on the moon might end up being. Tourism is one potential example of that. So either flying around the moon or landing on the moon and and sort of staying on a moon hotel or something, I can imagine that might be a thing that people might want to pay for. But, you know, not very many of them it'll be very expensive. The other thing people talk about is resource extraction. So mining on the moon. And the most valuable thing probably on the moon is, I mean, people talk about helium-3 as fusion fuel, but we don't actually have working fusion reactors. So let's ignore that one. It's actually water ice. And there are places on the moon where it looks like there is water ice just sitting there because it's in permanently shaded craters. And you could potentially land a factory on top of that, mine it, turn it into rocket fuel and then sell it to someone like NASA. But again, we're talking about a commercial operation where the customer is still a government space agency. I suppose you could also sell that to commercial firms that want to fly things to elsewhere in the solar system. But why would you stop on the moon? It's not really clear. So the reason why you might want to do commercial stuff on the moon is certainly not clear at this stage.
3: Are there uses for cislunar space, you know, the orbital region around the moon?
4: Well, I suppose you can imagine what they are, but they're scientific. I mean, putting a telescope, for example, in an orbit that takes it around the other side of the moon or putting a a telescope on the far side of the moon so that it's blocked by the moon itself from radio signals from Earth. That would be quite useful. But again, this is pure science. It's not a commercial opportunity as far as I can see, unless you're talking about very rich tourists.
3: (laughs) Well, let's imagine some point in the future where the logistics of getting to the moon have become easier and clever people have worked out some economics of mining on the moon's surface that that has become useful. I guess it raises a question which people don't tend to think about too far in advance, but maybe it's it's worth us talking about, which is who actually owns the moon and decides whether you can extract resources and own parts of the land there?
4: Well, that opens up a whole can of worms. This is something that people have talked about for decades. And now, with these private vehicles starting to land on the moon, we're actually going to have to figure out what the answer is, because nobody really knows.
3: Okay, Tom, well, we'll talk about that shortly. First, though, it's time to remind listeners that you can read Tom's report on the 2023 private moon missions in this week's science section of The Economist. Of course, there are plenty of other brilliant stories too, like an update on how to search for extraterrestrial life. Always fascinating, I think, to try and find out how to talk to aliens. Tom, is there anything you've been enjoying recently in The Economist?
4: I have to say that piece on how to talk to aliens is absolutely brilliant. And it has this mind-blowing idea about using supernovas as a a sort of way of signaling it's really really clever so you time your signals depending on supernovas seriously read the piece it was one of the cleverest i I love those sort of aha moments you get from reading science pieces sometimes and uh, i really got one from that piece
3: all right with that recommendation you'll definitely have to read it now to do that you'll have to subscribe so go to economist.com podcast offer the link is in the show notes thanks tom we'll be back in just a moment Today on Babbage, we're investigating the increasing interest in the moon from private companies. The question of who owns the moon is a contentious one. To understand how the moon is governed today, I spoke to Tara Patel, an expert in space at Britain's National Space Centre. She wound the clocks back to the 1960s and the Cold War.
1: The Soviet Union and America at the time We're in a sort of political race to be the first in lots of different space records. From being the first to get into space, and being the first to get a human to orbit around the Earth. And eventually that space race led to getting the first person to land on the moon. And I guess it was around that time that people started thinking about what are the laws in space going to be? Who defines those rules? And
3: were there any treaties or agreements signed in those times um, during the Apollo era to begin the conversations around the issues you've just raised?
1: Yeah, so about 55 years ago, we had what is still considered one of the most sort of defining pieces of regulation, the Outer Space Treaty. And what it had is a set of sort of overarching principles.
2: Between West and East, this is the best cooperation for a long time.
1: So rather than definitive rules, almost like guidance of how we wanted to treat space and how we wanted different nations to actually approach exploring space. And some of the key principles of that are things like making sure that space is accessible for everyone, and making sure that nobody can claim ownership of any part of space, And making sure that we use space for sort of safe practices and also to help with the development of kind of civilization here on Earth. So for productive purposes, I guess. The issue that we have with treaties like this is that they were formed when it was mostly governments that were in charge of the space activities. Now we also have private companies and organizations and that treaty, it's not definitive, it's not detailed enough to actually cover some of the issues that we're coming across today.
3: Well, in 1967, I suppose, when the Outer Space Treaty was signed, I don't think many people were thinking about the resources on the moon and who might be able to exploit them. I wonder, you've already touched on this, but has international law since 1967 changed to reflect our changing uses for space?
1: So I think there have been different treaties, uh, the Moon Treaty being one of them, things like the Astronaut Rescue Agreement as well. With the Moon Treaty, there were several countries that tried to agree on a set of principles and rules in terms of the use of the moon and exploring the moon.
4: I am here today to talk about the future, a future that is peaceful,
1: America and NASA were not one of the countries that actually agreed to that, although they have now come up with their own Artemis Accords. But
3: fundamentally, the Accords are about avoiding conflict, transparency, public registration, deconflicting activities. These are the
4: principles that will preserve peace.
1: When it comes to things like resources, during the Apollo missions, the Americans brought back pieces of moon rock. They sort of laid claim to those pieces of moon rock, even though the Outer Space Treaty clearly defines nobody can have ownership of any part of space.
2: Ames is trying to trace the moon's history by studying meteorite impacts on the lunar rocks, looking at organic compounds to see if the moon could sustain life, and although the possibility is very small, they are actually looking for living organisms.
1: More recently, the Chinese have brought back lunar samples. So it's kind of trying to work out where do we draw the line as to is this breaking the law? Is it not breaking the law? And how do we define that? So lots of work I think is still to be made in this field.
3: Well, I mean that's a good point, isn't it? All the different treaties and accords and ideas you've discussed are a bit of a patchwork. It's not the case that the UN has come along and just made everything very clear for everyone. I just wonder how can these sorts of treaties and agreements have any legal force if only some countries are on board with them. And access to space is getting even easier, so more people want to know what's going on.
1: I think this is where the challenge lies, and I don't know that there is an easy solution. The United Nations seems like the best place to start, but it has to come from all parties within the agreement. It cannot be led by one country or those dominant spacefaring nations at present, just because some of the other countries in the world don't yet have an investment or a stake in space.
3: Okay, so we've outlined that there's lots and lots of gaps in terms of actually understanding how to regulate and police the behaviour in space and on the moon. And it doesn't seem like there's any sort of global agreement on this yet. But in your view, who's going to take the lead in creating one? Is there an obvious candidate? Are there people trying to create a kind of global consensus that you've hinted at?
1: So I think the United Nations is likely going to be the right place for that to happen. But actually, as you mentioned earlier on, we have so many private companies, commercial companies now entering that field that actually they need to have their say in this as well. I think when treaties like the Outer Space Treaty were put together, private companies weren't a consideration. And actually, in this world that we're developing into, that I think is going to become more and more prominent and actually it's everyone's opinion that we need to try and get together. But I think it's the countries that have already made headway with this that should be the ones at least trying to help lead it.
3: Okay, well, that makes sense. Dara, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I'm joined again by The Economist's Tom Standage. Tom, so we've just heard about the attempts to govern space that go all the way back to the 1960s with the Outer Space Treaty. Now that commercial interests are getting increasingly involved in the exploration of the Moon, what kinds of issues do you think it could cause not to have an agreement?
4: The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 says straight up that you can't assert any property rights over the Moon. So we are at this sort of situation where we don't have agreement on basic things like resource exploitation. I mean, if you obviously go and take a little sample or two of moon dust or bring it back to Earth, that's not going to change things. But what happens if you want to send a probe that goes and looks at the Apollo 11 site? I mean, is that a historical monument? Should it be protected? What about protecting the pristine environment of the moon for future scientists? Even if you're NASA and you want to go and get water ice and use it to make fuel or something like that, it's unclear whether you can do that. At the moment, it's a free-for-all and it doesn't matter because in practice, no one can get there. But now that people can get there that starts to be unsustainable.
3: So it's clear that laws and agreements need to be updated. And, you know, you need to get all countries on board. Otherwise, rogue nations or others who haven't signed up can just do whatever they want. But, you know, how do you do that? Because the UN was the venue for the Outer Space Treaty. Is the UN the venue for this? I mean, it takes so long to do anything through the UN. And developments are happening quickly when it comes to getting to the moon.
4: One example would be fishing and the way that fishing rights are managed and handled in international law. Another example would be seabed mining, where there's already been quite a lot of debate about this. And then another example is telecoms, because you have the idea that within a given country, the government can decide what happens with the airwaves with different bits of spectrum. But when you start broadcasting up and down to space, then you can start interfering with what other countries want to do. And so all of those models have been proposed as ways that you might regulate space. The problem is that we can't even regulate, regulate fishing on Earth. There hasn't really been an enormous amount of progress with the seabed mining. And there are still arguments quite often about the way that the spectrum is dished out and telecoms and satellite operators sue each other and, and that kind of thing. So none of these is terribly inspiring because even these things don't work on Earth all the time. And so expanding them to space could be quite difficult.
3: That does sound quite bleak then. I mean, do you think that international agreement on access to the Moon can even be achieved? Or is it something that will just have to be continuously worked on for decades and decades without any sort of real resolution, and we just sort of make it up as we go along?
4: Well, another analogy that's slightly less depressing is Antarctica, because Antarctica is somewhere where we do see cooperation. We do see lots of scientists of different nationalities getting along. Maybe there are some lessons we could draw from that. I think really, when it comes down to it, at the moment, the stakes are still quite low because we haven't got rival companies or rival countries' companies saying, oi, we we want that piece of ice over there or we're going to mine this resource over here. And I think once it gets really real like that, which looks like it could happen you know, sooner than we think, then that's going to be the point where it's necessary to sit down and actually work out an agreement. And I think we are almost at that point now.
3: So what happens next then? I mean, all of these issues may come to a head when constellations of probes and things get on their way to the Moon, if it can be proved that you can get there sort of in a cost-effective way, if people work out commercial opportunities, and so on. What do you think you're going to be looking for next in this story of the Moon, now that everyone's back paying attention to it?
4: Well, obviously, in the short term, I want to see what happens with the other two probes. Will they launch on time? How will all the probes do? Will they crash? Will they work? you know, if they all work, then suddenly everyone will sit up and take notice, right? And if they all go wrong, then it's business as usual. So that's the immediate thing. I think more broadly, there is going to be a lot more focus on the Moon in the coming years. It's not just these probes. All of these companies are planning to send more. And in many cases, they have contracts from NASA. And then, of course, we're going to see if NASA gets its way, it's going to be landing people on the Moon in the next few years. So I think just generally, the idea that the Moon is a place where people could do stuff is going to become part of the discussion. And, as a result, we're going to start hearing more about these debates. And also that means we're going to have to start making decisions about some of these things. And I should say it's not just the moon. There's also the question of ownership of asteroids or, you know, the surface of Mars. I mean, the moon is going to be the sort of first place we have to work all this stuff out. But more broadly, we do have to work out who owns stuff in space beyond the moon. But we haven't really figured out what the true answer is.
3: Well, we haven't figured out who it belongs to, exactly. It's something for us to work out now. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This new era of lunar exploration, the commercial era, is in its earliest possible stages. There's clearly a lot left to figure out before businesses can reliably operate on the moon. Not least, who owns the resources on the moon and how access to those resources should be regulated. But so long after the iconic Apollo missions ended, it's certainly impressive and exciting to see governments and companies begin, however gingerly, to grapple with some of these challenges and set their sights back to the moon. Here's Gene Cernan in 1972, as he left the moon for the final time.
1: This is Gene, and I'm on the surface. And I die?
2: take man's last step from the surface, back home, for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just let what I believe history will record, that American challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing as we shall return with faith and hope for all mankind. Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17.
3: Our thanks to Steve Altamus, Ian Jones, Dara Patel, and of course, The Economist's Tom Standage. And thank you for listening. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.